Can everybody hear me? Awesome. Well, thank you for that kind introduction, and it's, it's wonderful to be back this morning. Um, please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, you've made us exactly the way you designed us, knit together by your hands, fearfully and wonderfully made, unique, one of a kind. Why can't we be happy with that? Why do we work so hard at being someone we're not? Lord, help us with our identity, accepting the beautiful creations we are intended to be and become. Help us be able to see and fight against the influences that pull us from your plans, to be who you created us to be, to do what you created us to do, and to accept our esteem, not from anything or anyone but you. Amen. I once knew a young man who was extraordinarily intelligent, so smart he not only aced the ACT, but he was the valedictorian in his high school class of 600. He was accepted to every notable and prestigious engineering school in the country, and in high school he was the big fish in the little pond, having the whole world ahead of him for his taking. He had grown up being told, you're the smartest kid in school, you're gifted in math, gifted in science. You are exceptional. You are special. Essentially, every adult in his life continuously reinforced this message about how smart and special he was, adding adjectives to his giftedness like profoundly, remarkably, terrifically, and amazingly. In fact, this became his identity, being special. Everything in his life revolved around this identity, so after high school, off to MIT he went, ready to succeed yet again. So far in his life, he had never had to put much effort as academics came so easy. He was that classmate that you might know who has a photographic memory. Yet within two months of starting at MIT, he realized for the first time in his life that he was average. Yes, average at MIT, but still average. And when his first semester midterm grades came back, B's, C's, and a D, he had an identity crisis. He wasn't the big fish in a small pond anymore. He wasn't the smartest anymore. And he wouldn't be getting the messages about how exceptional he was anymore. He was just an average to below average small fish in a big pond. So one Friday night, he jumped off the eighth floor balcony at a local hotel, ending his life and all the potential it offered. That young man was my second cousin. What is identity? There's a lot of buzz about it, as far as what it is, and the messages and opinions we receive about identity are very numerous, and most confuse the true meaning of who we really are. These mixed messages and the confusion they cause result in a lot of unhealthy coping strategies. And these actions that we take to soothe our aching identities leads to a variety of psychological disorders and medical conditions. This morning I want to take you on a journey about identity in hopes that you will look at yourself in a true light, look at your priorities and your direction. In Richard Bowles' famous short book, What Color Is Your Parachute?, he proposes three important questions we all must answer in life. Who am I? Why am I here? And where am I going? This morning, 
I'm going to primarily talk about who am I. So how can we define identity? When you Google it, it looks like this. Being oneself and not another. Being the same one as actually is. Or character as to a person is, the qualities that distinguish a person from others. Your true identity is who you were meant to be, body, mind, and soul. It is the person God created you to be and become in your life. It's the person you will know is true because when you are that person, it will be the most comfortable for you. It is the person who is your sweet spot, happy, and pleased not to pretend. It's the person who doesn't try to be someone they're not. It's the person who has no secrets because they don't have to and doesn't wear a mask or lie about who they are. It's the person and identity that Jesus desires for you to embrace because it's the way he created you. You know, when I get off track with my true identity, I have to remember that I was created by God in his image and by his hands. So who am I to argue with that? Who gave me the right to change his work? I believe there are five primary influencers in identity. Our culture, social media, friends, family, and faith. And to adequately look at what true and authentic identity is, we must first think about what identity is not. And no better place to understand what identity is not than with our culture. Culture inundates us with constant messages about who we are supposed to be, how we are supposed to act, what are we supposed to believe about ourselves and the world and what's supposed to be important to us. And honestly, most of it's BS. Not all, but most. You see, false messaging from culture is targeted at everyone, all generations, all races, and all socioeconomic groups. And the difficulty is that we have to sort through what is true and what is false about these messages from our culture. For example, magazine advertisements and commercials target young women, influencing them to believe that this is what beauty really is. Over 98% of all pictures in teen women's magazines have been altered, photoshopped or enhanced. What is now interesting that 68% of U.S. adults alter their selfies before posting or sending them by removing blemishes and adding color to not look pale and even apps to make themselves look thinner. 75% of millennials do the same. But none of that is our true identity. Financial investment companies produce commercials that target people my age influencing us to strive to be wealthier and live in luxury in our later years. It's not hard to think about the high percentage of people who are reminded that they'll never be wealthy enough to have a sailboat when they retire, let alone look like this when you're 65. That is not our true identity. The sports industry targets young men, influencing them to think that power and strength and domination define what a man is supposed to be. And the picture of what it takes to be a professional athlete sets unrealistic expectations for young men. That is not our true identity. And the pornography industry targets young and old, men and women, influencing them to have a terribly distorted understanding of what sexuality is supposed to be. 
And imagery becomes ingrained in our young brains and ultimately follows us into adult relationships, creating expectations about sex that simply are not true. And that is not our true identity. And the result of these messages and many others is that they seep deep into our subconscious. We may say that we aren't influenced by these messages, but we all are, and our decisions and directions become dictated by them. I have a whiteboard up here in Preston over here. Let's give Preston a hand. Excellent. Come on up, Preston. He's a reluctant participator. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> he says his handwriting is amazingly good. So I want you to shout out for Preston to write on the board, the, the uh, fill in the blank. Culture says you have to be blank. Anybody? Don't write that one down. Okay. Culture says you have to be perfect. Excellent. Perfect. Culture says you have to louder. Culture says you have to be more. Oh. Okay, more. Okay. That wouldn't that wouldn't win a game show, but we'll write it down. Um, culture says you have to be athletic. athletic. Good. Culture says you have to be preppy. Trendy. Excellent. You know, my wife says I need a hearing aid, but <laughs> I don't think so. Okay. And one more. Culture says you have to be. Do you hear what they're saying? No, I don't. What? Culture says you have to be smart, smart, smart. Okay, good. Woo! That was harder than I thought it would be. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Preston. I'll call you back up in a few minutes. Hey, sure. So what is the end result of all these cultural messages? Well, they create in us a feeling that we must measure up to something that many times isn't us because those somethings and those some people that we have to measure up are not realistic. At least no one can, at least over a long period of time. And shame ends up being the result. Cultural shame is something I see in almost every adolescent I've met and it hides inside of them. Cultural shame is a big deal because it tends to shift our thinking about our identity into one of two extremes. We call these extremes shame cycles. And the two kinds of shame cycles are positive shame and negative shame. What are these and how do they play out in our minds? Well, negative shame cycles speak to us in ways that make us feel like we're defective or unworthy. Negative shame cycles sound like this in our minds. I am ugly. I am undesirable. I am stupid. I am bad. I am unwanted. I'm a disappointment. I am selfish. Or I am a slob. Negative shame cycles talk to, in, talk to us in our minds with messages of inadequacy and failure. And that becomes part of our identity. 
But the truth about negative shame is that we all have a small amount of each of these not-so-good attributes, don't we? All of us are selfish at times. All of us disappoint those we love at times. All of us have a mean side at times, and all of us feel unattractive at times. Negative shame tends to be part of all of us. And the problem is, is when we start to believe that the negative shame we have defines us, defines our identity. Positive shame cycles are the things we start to believe about ourselves that might be partially true sometimes, but we try to expand them into being representative of our whole identity. These are things we believe about ourselves that make us feel better than we really should feel about ourselves. Positive shame cycles in our minds sound like this. I am popular. I am smarter than most. I am prettier than the others. I am generous. I am always helpful. I am desirable. And positive shame talks to us in our minds with messages of superiority and conceit. And that becomes our identity. We are better than. But the truth about positive shame is that it keeps us on a treadmill of performance and expectations that we and others have, have for us and uh, to be and act a certain way. We end up thinking higher of ourselves than we ought to. And we start to take on this positive shame identity, don't we? But the reality of human existence is that we each have thoughts and actions that make us believe overly negative things about ourselves and overly positive things about ourselves. We all need to live in the middle, not on one extreme or the other, not in the negative or the positive shame cycle. And why do I say this? It's because we are never as bad as we think we are on our worst days, and we're never as good as we think we are on our best days. There is also a new way culture is looking at identity, and it's very different than it's been in the past. Today, self-construction has replaced self-discovery. Self-construction is when you believe you have to create your own identity. In other words, it's up to you to define who you are, it's up to you to make a difference, it's up to you to make your existence count. And this forces you not only to construct your identity, it forces you to justify your existence. Whatever identity and existence you decide for yourself to have. And when you think about identity this way, you have to make it up in your mind about not just who you are, but who you want to be. And then you need to set out doing it for your whole life. This assumes that your identity is simply clay in your hands and that you have the right to mold it the way you want. Self-construction puts immense pressure on us to create our own identity in spite of the fact we didn't create ourselves. We were never meant to create our own identity, and most people I know who try experience great pressure, including myself. The truth is that if we're trying to create our own identity, failure will become our identity. It's inevitable. Constructing our identity will be fickle because we will always be striving to become for others what, they think, what we think they want rather than accept and discover our true self. Self-construction is simply a freedom that leads to frustration. The ultimate goal of self-construction is to be special in some ways. Imagine two sisters, one a very talented musician having won many competitions. Might even say she's gifted. 
Her sister's an average musician and observes and hears the comments her sister receives from all of those who hear her play. And one night, the average musician's sister says to her parents, what am I going to be gifted in? Have you ever thought that? I'm going to get, let you in on a little secret. There's an epidemic of gifted and exceptional kids out there. And most of them are not gifted or exceptional. It seems like a lot of parents say their kids are gifted or exceptional or both. I bring this issue in because self-construction of your identity is really um, about being special. The issue of giftedness and exceptionality has gotten way out of hand. And you know, statistically, only 2.5% of people would have anything in a special ability that would be considered gifted. But we live in a time when if you're not gifted or exceptional at something, you end up feeling defective, and that is sad. Average kids are being given the message that if you don't do something that's exceptional, or if you're not gifted at this or that, you have less worth than others. What a disservice to the majority of people. I tell parents and teachers and youth workers to rarely use the terms gifted and exceptional because they are rare. And even if someone is gifted at something, so what? We shouldn't be trying to tie their identity to something they just happen to be pretty good at. Personally, I like to be connected to average people. Anyone else feel that way? Why? Because I'm average. I'm one average dude. Who out there believes they're average? Excellent. About half. So the other half are gifted or exceptional. I want everybody to stand up right now Stand up and turn to the person next to you and I want you to say to them loudly, I am average. Now give, no, now give them a high five, high five your friend and now I want you to say, isn't it wonderful? And you may sit down. <laughs> I like to include the issue of averageness when I talk about identity because even if you're gifted or exceptional or ultra-talented, the world doesn't really care because the truth is none of us are really that special. Cultural messages about identity also have consequences in our self-esteem, primarily because cultural self-esteem is actually built on a false premise. And I would define our culture's idea of self-esteem as this, how you feel about yourself based on your performance and what others think about you because of that performance. Does that sound familiar? This contrasts with real self-esteem or true self-esteem, which I would define as how you feel about yourself despite your performance or how others feel about it. Others' esteem is based on others' opinions and perceptions and it is out of your control. So if you're basing your self-esteem on others, you'll become very frustrated. If you're tied to the accolades and applauses of friend, applause of friends and family because of how you perform, be warned, it will not last. Social media. The second major influence in our identity today is social media. 
This wasn't true before about the time you were born because it didn't exist, but it is now. And not just for millennials or Gen, Gen Zers, the influence social media has now affects all generations. The average time on social media and messaging is a whopping two hours and 20 minutes a day for everybody who has a smartphone. That's average for all ages. Millennials and Gen Zers spend 75% more time on social media per day than my generation, the baby boomers. And social media is also built around rabbit holes. And you probably know what I mean. Those sites that you might click on when they pop up in front of your face without warning. And you say, hmm, I wonder what this is about. Developers of social media sites like Facebook and Snapchat, Instagram and Tumblr, they have programmers and brain experts on their teams to write these social media apps. Companies creating social media actually have PhD level psychologists and researchers with expertise in addiction and brain neurobiology. And their input determines how the programs are written to maximize addiction potential and engagement of social media users, which is why many of us can waste a lot of time on social media. Seniors, raise your hand. Nice. Oh, all in the. What a nice little comfortable, comfortable zone for you. Uh, in a few short weeks, you'll be going to the DR, is that correct? Yes. What? <laughs> you will not be allowed to have technology with you, is that correct, Mr. Beckering? In theory. And I will tell you, having been on eight DR mission trips, that will be one of the greatest blessings of your trip. I participated in many trips when our three kids were here, and those experiences were some of the fondest I still have today. And boy, could I tell you some damaging stories about Mr. D and Brian Goldie and Mr. Beckering, but I won't, at least. This is being podcast, so you're welcome. One of the things I will always remember about the trips is how the lack of access to screens and phones deepened relationships and lowered anxieties. We chaperones could just see it happen right in front of our eyes in the first 48 hours of the trip, because after detoxifying from your phones, you will experience maybe for the first time an array of people that you've been around for years but have never known before. And all of a sudden you will have the margin and time to talk to each other and to work together, painting and digging ditches and cleaning up diapers and giving baths to crippled children in orphanages and talking to lepers about their faith. Real stuff. You might have to testify in a dark street corner in a sugarcane village with hundreds of strangers around, feral dogs roaming and barefooted little kids everywhere. You'll participate in evening discussions with classmates and hear each other's stories about struggles in their lives and in their faith. And every single trip I went on was the same takeaway for the students. Wow, I never knew her before, but boy, she's an amazing person. Or, I really thought he was a jerk before, but he really has a cool heart and love for people. And being off social media will force you to live face to face with each other. And you'll become close friends the rest of this year and beyond. The second memory I still incredible to me and is related to our identity is one of the seniors several years ago who I had known before the trip happened to be assigned to my travel group. So in, in the evenings our group shared a lot about life and about faith and about adversity and all I can tell you is he blossomed in the DR. 
He dove in and fully participated, and without his gaming, his social media, and his phone, well, he experienced authentic relationships with his classmates for the first time. And you know what he said to me the night before we returned to Minnesota? He said, Dr. J, I don't want to go back. Tears were streaming down his face, and I said, well, we have to go back. But I think I understand what you're saying. You want to go back home, but you don't want to go back to what was your life before the trip. And he nodded. He had learned a lot about his identity in those eight days. So what does social media have to say about us? Preston? Come on up, give him a, give him a big round. <laughs> I love doing this to people who hate coming up in front of people. This is so fun. You're doing a great job, Preston, don't you think? Okay. Social media says I have to be... What? Rich. Rich. Massive abs. What? Flats. Class. Flats. Man, I need hearing aids. Do you see what they're saying? Social media says I have to be... Okay, one person over here. Social media says I have to be... Attractive, good. Social media says I have to be... Funny, excellent. Social media says I have to be... Hip. Hip. Hip, like H-I-P? Got it, okay? You know, I'm really hip, I'm just saying. One more. Social media says you have to be... What? Fake? Sick? Fit. Fit. Okay, fit. F-I-T. No, no. T-H-I-C-C? All right. I can't. Isn't it hard to hear? Okay, good, 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 good. You go sit down. Yeah, okay. That was a tough one. Oh, give him a round. Come on. <laughs> I believe there are two main consequences of social media on our, on our identity. And those are living as a false self and living in a comparison mode. What is our false self? Our false self is who we think we should be. It's kind of a mental image almost a social agreement with our conscious and subconscious, a, a fictional creation. We can spend most of our lives living up to it or living down to it. Our false self is fragile and needy, insecure, because there's no substance. It is fake and counterfeit and built on an untrue reality, and it's been formed entirely in our psychological and mental time, and it's preoccupied with maintaining an act there's always tension in our false self. We always feel tension because we're afraid of being found out. And clinging to this false self is living with a tragic case of mistaken identity. Being in our false self is uncomfortable and it doesn't feel content or satisfied. True self is frequently discovered by going through the process of tearing down our false self. And it just leaves us. And for most, this process happens as we transition into adulthood and sometimes even into midlife. 
It's hard work because we actually have to get to the place of being fed up and tired with the facade that we've created and enough humility to accept what needs to happen. The taking down of our false self is typically hard work because of the numerous layers we have built around our false self, trying to protect our image. But once we embrace the journey of discovering who we really are and who God created us to be, the tension of false self subsides and contentment sets in. You feel like you're finally on track, kind of like the student in the DR. You see, our true self is that person who participates in the great I am. Our false self privately manufactures and maintains I am. There's a difference. The true self is indestructible and has inner abundance. It's not needy, easily offended, or hurt, and is characterized by contentment, peace, and joy. Comparing, comparing yourself to others is the second consequence of social media. It's set up to make us compare ourselves to others. It's inevitable. It's like kerosene poured on the flame of social comparison and dramatically increases the information about people that we're exposed to and forces our mind to asset, uh, assess it. And in the past, we absorbed others' triumphs sporadically. The alumni bulletin would report a former classmate having acquired a new job. Or a neighbor would mention to us while mowing his lawn that his kid got into Harvard. And now such news is at our fingertips constantly, updating us about a greater range of people than we previously tracked and invite uh, and we invite its pre-filtered pre jolts of information into our bathroom breaks, our moments waiting in line for coffee, and even our beds at 2 a.m. The tendency to check social media in our downtime, well, when we're supposed to be more self-reflective, can make for some ugly comparisons. And social media seems to ascribe explicit valuations to people in ways that once seemed more vague. And all of these things affect our identity. Think about the pictures and messages your friends post on social media. Are they reflective of who you know them to be? How happy are they really? How successful were they really? How amazing are they really? Think about the pictures and messages you post. Are they reflective of who you really are? How happy are you really? How successful are you? Really? And how many times have you posted something about how you've screwed up? Maybe failed a class or missed the last second chance to score a goal in an open net? How about the time you betrayed your best friend or lied to your parents? Were these things posted on your social media? When our focus is on comparing ourselves to other, we naturally filter out almost all of the not good or embarrassing parts of ourselves in order to share the perfect and the happy. Do you seek to feel good about yourself through social rewards or do you rely more stable on, on, on more stable ways of recognizing who you are? What are your values and preferences in the absence of anybody knowing about them? Can you be proud of the person you are who isn't publicly posted? See, comparison kills our sense of authenticity because it, its end results are jealousy in pretending in a sense of inadequacy. That's our false self. Friends influence our, ident our identity for sure. What is significant about friends' influences is that at times your friends can be the primary input to your identity, and this is especially true at your age. 
Friends influence our identity by shaping our values, affecting our attitudes, and persuading our decisions. It's kind of that whole peer pressure thing you've heard about too many times. Preston, come on back up. Yeah. You're the next contestant on The Price is Right. So just not everybody yelling at the same time because Preston can't hear very well. Friends tell me I have to be... Friends tell me I have to be... What? Funny. Okay, funny. Friends tell me I have to be... Honest. 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 Is that right? Honest. Friends tell me I have to be cool. cool. Exactly. Friends tell me I have to be loyal. what? Loyal. loyal. Excellent. Friends. One more. Friends. <laughs> Friends tell me I have to be what? Daring. I like it. Okay. Good. And let's thank Preston again for his excellent work. So what are values? Friends shape our values. What kind of values do you want? Do you want your relationships to be dependable or undependable? Those are two values. Do you value being honest or is it okay to fib or lie to get what you want? Is loyalty something you always want for your friends to incorporate in life or are you okay with betrayal? Do you see yourself as committed to things and people or does that not matter one way or the other to you? Are you a person of integrity, striving to always represent what you have promised? Or do you not represent what you promised? If most of your friends are undependable, you will likely take on that value. If most of your friends are loyal to you, you will likely do the same. I used to tell my kids, if you walk out on a basketball court and there's 50 basketballs, Eventually, you're going to pick one up and start to dribble. Friends influence our attitudes about most everything in life. An attitude is the emotion or belief or behavior we have toward a particular person, thing, or object. And they can be positive or negative or neutral, and they tend to dictate our responses to a person, thing, or object. And they can change over time, whereas values tend to be stable over a lifetime. A good test about whether a friend's attitude is affecting your identity is to ask whether that friend is a giver or a taker. Takers usually drain you of energy or play on your fears and insecurities. Takers usually transmit an attitude that hinders your ability to grow or see things from your own perspective. Whereas givers embody attitudes that build you up, challenge you in constructive ways. Givers are those quality friends that are generous, selfless, empowering, and loyal, and they seek to make you a better person. So surround yourself with friends with positive attitudes because it will affect your identity. And then finally, friends impact decisions connected to our identity. And those decisions have indwelling consequences, both good and bad. I found it surprisingly easy when I was your age to get steered off course by social pressures something we've all been affected by at some point in our lives. We've all experienced moments when our perceptions were distorted by those around us or we made an ill-conceived decision to go along with a group. But from the standpoint of friends, surround yourself with people who have your best interest in mind and you'll avoid these kinds of decisions. 
And also take full ownership over what you do and how you think. Because not everyone with whom you cross paths will want you to succeed. And the key is to identify people who are really with you. Family. How does family influence our identity? Yesterday we talked a lot about growing up in families. And you probably remember that my family was far from perfect. But I also said that growing up with adversity was ultimately one of my greatest blessings from my family. Even though I didn't feel like it was a blessing as I was traveling through it. So Preston, come back up for the... <laughs> you know, he is doing absolutely an amazing job, don't you think? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So good. <laughs> so my family says I have to be blank. Obedient. Excellent. My family says I have to be Respectable, okay? My family says I have to be smart, okay? And so my question is, what if you're not smart? Oh, so nice, nice. My family says I have to be nice, excellent. Over on this side, my family says I have to be successful. That's excellent. Thank you, Preston. Doing a, you're doing an awesome job. Really good. Okay, good. <laughs> the key for me in, in my family and how it have influenced my identity is to learn from my family struggles, mistakes, and genetic dispositions. And, and there was a time in my life where I committed to do something very different than what I was growing up in. And I mentioned that if you happen to be growing up in a stable and loving family, well, consider that an amazing blessing as well and commit to building on that. One of the things I remember about growing up is, was that I thought and I was made to believe that my life was all about me. But that's not true. Yes, in their own way, my family did tend to affirm me along this thought process, especially when I was succeeding. And I have to admit, I did a lot of things pretty good, other than grammar, because it should be pretty well. Mrs. Hawkland? Okay, all right. But I was able to juggle a lot of things at any given time. And it was like most every adult in my life was pushing me to think that my life was all about me. And now in retrospect, I see the futility of that. And I realized I was merely part of a bigger story, God's story, and my family was just my starting place. My life was never about me and neither is yours. Being part of a family is really practice for the real world. And that's how you gain some of your identity. You learn to coexist with people who love you, even when they sometimes say or do things that hurt you. Family is about authority and hierarchy and respect and being nice and learning the politics of a relationship and understanding compromise and sacrifice. So fitting into a family, reconciling with family, learning healthy boundaries with family, these are all things that we need to learn before we enter into the real world. And family is a place where we learn to do that. Until we have seen someone do something, it isn't even in our minds as we grow up. We don't even really understand what patience is until you've met a patient grandmother. We don't know what love is until we have observed or experienced love from a loving person, and that typically starts in our family. It's a place where we're introduced to a lot of important things about life. And your family will always be your family. It's interesting for me, even when my family was falling apart, 
and you could cut the tension with a, a knife. Whenever I returned home to my family in Duluth, there was a sense of being. I belonged to my family whether things were going well or not. And then finally, faith is an important influencer of our identity as well. And I want to end with this because for me, my faith has been the most important part of learning about who I am and what my identity truly is. You see, our God is an awesome God. And he has some things to say about your identity and my identity. Fortunately for me, my heavenly father taught me directly and through others who I am. And I'm a reflection of the creator of the universe made in his image, and that is my identity. Preston, one more time, come on up. So I want you to tell us, and Preston will start, God says I am blank. God says I am blank. Valuable, excellent. God, God says I am God says I am loved. Excellent. God says I am worthy. What? God says I am enough. Priceless. Loved. We've got that already, but we'll put it twice. Loved X2. What? You are his. Excellent. Wow. Those are some good answers. Thank you, Preston. Let's give him a standing ovation. <laughs> So what does God say about your identity? I think he says a lot. And what he says is so good. And it's the opposite of what culture tells you you are. It's the opposite of what social media tells you you are. It can even contradict what your friends tell you about your identity. And God's own words in his word speak a lot about your identity and they reflect truth and grace and forgiveness and his words blow others esteem out of the water his word redefines for us what true self-esteem is and that is an understanding of our identity in terms of jesus esteem because of christ we are given our true identity accurate and transparent free and content I want to conclude this morning with contrasting what the world says about your identity. Many of these things you've actually shouted out so accurately and also what God says about you. And just let these differences wash over you. What the world says about your identity is you're a nobody. What God says is you're a child of God. What the world says about your identity is you're undesirable. And God says, you're dearly loved. The world says, you have to construct your own identity. And God says, no, I created you in my image. The world says, you are defective. And God says, you're redeemed. The world says, you're accused and guilty. And God says, no, you're forgiven. 
The world says, you're judged. And God says, I've accepted you. The world says, you're guilty. God says, no, you're free from condemnation. The world says, you'll never measure up. And God says, I've justified you. You don't have to. The world says, live on your own terms. And God says, no, be sanctified. The world says, conform to everybody else's expectations. And God says, no, conform to the fact that you're a new creation. The world says, be led by your feelings. And God says, no, be led by the spirit. And the world says, it's okay to Photoshop yourself. And God says, you don't have to. You're my workmanship. Wow, there we go. God says, or the culture says, your strength is in yourself. And God says, no, you're strong in me. Your weakness is through my strength. The world says, you will inherit uncertainty and stress. And God says, you will inherit my blessings. The world says, you're a failure. God says, you're a saint. The world says, you're a loser. God says, no, you're a conqueror. The world says you're a victim, and God says you're an overcomer. And the world say, says you are corrupted, and God says you are righteous. What messages are you listening to in your life? And what messages fit into who you are in God's eyes? Who does God say we are? And why would we ever listen to anyone or anything else? like to call up the worship band for the final song and in, as they come up I'd like to pray so please join me in pray, prayer Heavenly Father we have so much to learn from you about who you have created us to be and although it seems like it can take a lifetime to understand fully we know you are with us on our entire journey and want to have our identity in you through your son's atoning sacrifice on our behalf Help us rest in the peace of your arms as we accept your identity for us rather than strive so hard to create our own. Thank you for listening in on our Encounter podcast. You can find previous Encounter recordings and who will be coming in future weeks on our Southwest Christian High School webpage, www.swchs.org. Click on Student Life and Encounter. Again, thank you for joining us, and until next time, keep your eyes fixed, not on speakers, teachers, or institutions, but on Christ, the author and the perfecter of our faith.